Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer. This is a bonus episode brought to you by our investigative platform Noteworthy, where we carry out journalistic projects based on ideas sent to us by the public. I'm Susan Daly, and this week we publish the findings of an extensive cross-border investigation by Noteworthy's editor Maria Delaney, visual journalist Gila Garcia, and freelance reporter Louise Lawless. For the past six months, they looked into alleged exploitation in the Irish fishing industry. The whole project was supported by journalismfund.eu, which connects journalists in order to promote democracy on the European continent, and in this case, even further beyond. I'm joined today by two of the investigative team, Maria and Gila. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. The first article in this series focused on the potential for trafficking within the Irish fishing industry. Before we delve into those findings, Maria, will you explain exactly, please, what trafficking can encompass? Because there is often a lot more involved than what is typically portrayed, especially on television. Yeah, thanks, Susan. So the Garda definition of trafficking is that involves the recruitment, movement, harboring or receiving of a person through means such as fear, fraud and deception coercion, force, or the abuse of power of a position of vulnerability. And it's for the purpose of sexual or labour exploitation, forced criminality, or the removal of the organs of a person. So that's quite a long definition, but it, it encompasses a lot more than what people might typically think of trafficking. And for fishers, the key here is labour exploitation. Right, Maria. And what happens if someone is identified here as a potential victim of trafficking, particularly in that marine sector you're talking about? So in the case of fishers, victims are often identified through NGOs and unions that interact with migrant workers. And obviously that's in the case of other workers, but in particular for fishers, some of the areas that identify them are people like the Migrant Rights Centre Ireland or MRCI or the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF. Also, vessels are often inspected in the fishing industry. So inspectors from the Workplace Relations Commission, WRC, the Marine Survey Office, which is the MSO, they do safety inspections and things like that, and also the Navy. Maria, you use a very striking term in this investigation, modern slavery. That is very strong. And I want to ask you, is that an official term? And if it is, how is that different from trafficking? Yes, that's an official term and it's been adopted by some, some governments, such as in the UK, and it encompasses both trafficking and forced labour. And the reason that it's been used is that trafficking can have quite a narrow connotation and people often focus on, say, issues like sexual exploitation rather than focusing on the labour exploitation side of it. And modern slavery actually means the illegal exploitation of people for commercial gain. So it broadens the scope of trafficking. And though labour exploitation is actually included in Ireland's definition of trafficking, um, this modern slavery term, it kind of expands people's minds. And I suppose it kind of moves people away from what they think it is. So it opens up this definition. I want to get to the powerful testimony in the series of articles that we've run, uh, which are on Noteworthy.ie and the Journal.ie. In your first article, we heard from one such alleged victim of trafficking, a fisher from the Philippines who we called Lloyd, that isn't his real name, but for his own protection. And the reporters in this series have focused on Filipino workers throughout the series. Why was that, Maria? 
So our grant that we obtained from journalismfund.eu was to examine modern slavery of Asian victims in Europe. And when we looked into the fishing industry in Ireland, the majority, so almost 50% of valid working permission holders were from the Philippines. And there's also fishers from Ghana, Indonesia and Egypt, and they're commonly employed on Irish vessels. So we focused on kind of the biggest majority that was the Filipino workers. And speaking of that, we had a lot of amazing work here from Gila, who I'm going to bring in. And thank you, Gila, for joining us, not only from your work in the Philippines, but today on the podcast from the Philippines in a totally different time zone. Gila, you examined why men are travelling from the Philippines to work on fishing boats in Ireland. Could you please tell us about that? Uh, so hello, thanks Susan for the questions. Uh, so I was able to speak to Dr. Maruha Morela Asis, who is the Director of Research and Publications at the Scalabrini Migration Center and co-editor of the Asian and Pacific Migration Journal in Manila. And according to Dr. Marla, who has studied uh, migrant workers, especially uh, workers in the fishing industry, and Filipino migrants leave the country for economic reasons. So we were able to speak to Lloyd, Rene, and Mark. Uh, These are fishermen who came from the southern island of the Philippines. The three of them, their main reason for going abroad is to really earn better for their families because the wages at home uh, aren't enough like and their salary is around 380 pesos a day back home which is equivalent to uh six six euros and 50 cents that is only able to buy them a, a few kilograms of rice and maybe a few uh a few pieces of fish or like not even like a whole kilogram of pork so those wages aren't enough for their families and that's one of their biggest motivations to to look for a better paying job abroad so yeah they really want to provide for their families and send a lot of of the money they earn home so that they could send their kids to school so even if there are a lot of migrant workers abroad uh the sector of the fishers are are really poorly studied or like understudied because uh, most of the research that we have right now are uh, are for my uh for women migrant workers like uh domestic helpers or like seafarers but for the fishing industry there has been little research on this sector and Paula paula pigol the Manila Port chaplain of the International Maritime Charity, Stella Maris, also said that there's really limited data about them, so they had to conduct their own research. And these migrant fishermen are a forgotten co- category of overseas workers in the Philippines because when we speak of overseas workers in the Philippines, we usually think of the domestic workers who are mostly uh, employed in the mid- Middle East or like uh, other Southeast Asian countries and yeah, of course, the US and, and some in Europe. But then for the fishermen, they're not really categorized yet or like properly categorized here locally. So all the more reason to have those testimonies recorded, Sheila, and you've been doing a great deal of that for this investigation. We thank you for that. And like countless people from Ireland throughout history, Maria, as Sheila described, their most were leaving to give their families a better life, maybe send money home. But they're not necessarily finding that here. Yeah, no, and um, as Sheila said there, that um, a lot of the research done on these fishers was done by organisations like Stella Marie's and 
It's kind of similar actually in Ireland. So basically most of the research in terms of exploitation in the sector or trafficking in the, in the sector has been done by organisations such as the Migrant Rights Centre Ireland, who did research into this in 2017 by talking to 30 migrant workers in the sector. And more recently, researchers from Maynooth, which was funded by the ITF, they spoke to more workers in the sector that was published last year, kind of almost like a follow-up survey of how things are going and and things didn't fare so well. So those two reports, as well as other reports, have found kind of again and again that there's exploitation and trafficking within the Irish fishing sector. Now, one of the prominent reports is the annual Trafficking in Persons or TIPS reports. And these are done by the United States government, State Department. And one of the main reasons that this is such a big issue is that if countries fare badly on these reports, it has an impact on whether companies can invest in other countries. So if um, companies in the US could invest in Ireland. So we used to be um, a few years ago, tier one, which meant that we adhere to the minimum standards in terms of um, trafficking. So like reporting, prosecuting and things like that. But in 2020, we were moved down to the tier two watch list. Now, there's only one other country in the EU at the time that was on that kind of section of the list, and that was Romania. And we also joined countries like Saudi Arabia, Vietnam and Brunei on that watch list. Successive TIPS reports have been highly critical of a number of issues in Ireland. And one of the main ones is that there's been no prosecutions for labour exploitation in the fishing industry. And has there been any response to these discoveries and any reporting by media on them, Maria? Yes, so there was a big investigation by The Guardian in 2015, which found that there is exploitation in the fishing sector and trafficking. And one of the reasons for this is that almost all non-EEA workers, so workers outside the EU, were undocumented because there wasn't any working scheme or working permission that they could fall under. Now, because of this, the atypical working scheme was brought in. Now, this scheme is quite different from the normal kind of general working permit in that it's a year long, you're tied to the employer and there's no opportunity to kind of get residency after five years. It's a stamp for residency option normally where people aren't tied to an employer anymore and have the option of family um, applying for family to come over and join them. So they didn't have any of those rights. So it's quite different. And um, I suppose quite soon after this scheme was introduced, and actually some of the experts told me they were saying this before the scheme was introduced, but it became, as experts told us, a vehicle to exploit some of the workers that it was introduced to protect. And the MRCI report in 2017, so that was actually just one, um, just over a year after the scheme was brought in, found that over 80% of workers on the scheme are working more than 60 hours a week with an average wage of 2.82 an hour. And that is because it, it kind of accounted for the overtime that they weren't getting paid for. Now, allegations of exploitation, exploitation and trafficking are strongly contested by organisations representing vessel owners, um, such as Patrick Murphy, who's CEO at the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation. And he told me that if you treat um, fishers such as these badly and they leave, you're out of business. 
and you can't take a boat out without a full complement of crew. So it is contested, but there have been a lot of reports showing exploitation and trafficking in the sector. And Gila, most importantly, again, you spoke to Filipino fishers. How did they say they were treated here? So I, we were able to speak uh, to fishers uh, from just outside Manila. One is Mark and the, uh, the other two are uh, Lloyd and Rene. In Ireland, uh, they really shared about their uh, terrible experiences. Uh, they all complained about not getting sufficient wages for the amount of the work that they had to do. And Rene told us that he had to sleep on a boat and not the apartment that he was promised when the boat was stocked. Rene was saying that his contract uh, stated that there should be a flat for them, but they weren't even uh, given the flat and they didn't even uh, receive allowance for the food. And I remember them saying that they had to eat leftover meat and fish on the boat. And as for Lloyd, uh, he was signed up to fish in the UK, but after landing in Belfast, he was driven straight to the south of Ireland. And he also said that he was physically abused by his skipper, that uh, one time he was punched by the skipper and it landed um, on his stomach really bad. And he said that he'll report him if ever that skipper would do that again. Meanwhile, for Mark, he was asked to work for 70 to 80 hours per week while fishing for ponds and got around like four hours of sleep each day. So after leaving the boats due to this exploitation, all the three are now undocumented, hopping from one job to another just to send money back home. So that gives a whole new level to overwork and underpaid Gila and obviously had a huge impact on the men themselves. But you also visited their family homes in the Philippines and spoke to the families that they'd left behind. Could you tell us what the experience was like for them, please? So I was able to visit the three of the Fisher's families, uh, the family of Lloyd, the family of Rene and Mark. What happened to them has a huge impact on their families. Like for Rene, uh, I remember his wife telling me that uh, there were around four loan companies coming to their home just to ask for payment for, for the loan. But they really couldn't pay anything. And even the wife doesn't know when Rene would send them money. They barely even have money enough for food. Uh, his eldest son had to take a, a day job just so that they could buy sardine, sardines and like some canned goods. They were they were really in debt uh, during that time. And I remember his youngest son even had to postpone school because they really couldn't afford to to buy anything anymore like they were already struggling with food and they, they had to stop school because they couldn't afford it and he even told me that because of this too much uh pressure and stress his hair has been falling out and until now he's taking medicine whenever he feels like uh, whenever he feels very stressed about their uh their reality and as for uh and as for mark i remember his son he was crying because he couldn't afford the uniform that he needs for his school. And the same, uh, the same problem applies for the family of Lloyd. His mother has to work uh, at the coconut farm, or like sell coconuts, just so they could buy a uniform for his son because Lloyd wasn't se- sending any money at all. And I remember uh, Lloyd tried to send them like 16,000 pesos here 
uh, here in the Philippines. And some of the amount had to be returned to Lloyd because Lloyd really had no money back in Ireland. So right now, they're unable to travel back home because their papers are still not sorted out. They haven't seen their families in years. and But despite that, they can't return home because they're worried that if they return home, it's uh, it's going to be worse since they're not they're not going to be able to send like a single cent to their families or like find a decent job that would that would cover their expenses so what they're doing now is they're hopping from one job to another and just just doing their best to be able to send whatever amount they can send to their families but yeah they're very afraid of their security because uh i guess for mark he's been uh hopping uh, jobs for every three months and i think it's the same thing for rene and that's how they're coping right now and their families uh and their families are really just worried about them and that's for lloyd uh he his mom doesn't even know his uh present condition that much they don't get to talk to each other a lot but she is sensing that something uh that her son is undergoing extreme pressure back in ireland but he but she just doesn't ask him that much anymore because she also knows the stress that he is undergoing so that's that's their life right now those are just horrifying testimonies and we have to say we owe a debt of thanks to the fisher men and their families for speaking to gila and for gila collecting those stories because they are not ones that we hear in ireland and as we've said earlier are not generally heard and one thing that's standing out from that is not only the, the lack of actual economic outcomes for the fishermen where they're kind of hoping that at least the troubles that they're going through is benefiting their families is actually not. They're also not seeing their families and they're afraid to go back. So Maria, as well as speaking to the migrant fishers, you spoke too to the workers' advocates because all of these workers are now undocumented. So can anything be done to help them? Um, Gila mentioned Lloyd there, so he was presented to the Gardaí by the International Transport Workers Federation, or the ITF, who I've mentioned before, and he was presented as an alleged victim of human trafficking. And what the ITF do is if a migrant worker comes to them and they are suspect that trafficking is in place, they use a set methodology and what they did for Lloyd was they assessed Lloyd and they found that numerous indications of trafficking um, were there, such as deception about the nature of his job, the location of his, his employer. As Gila said, he thought he was going to the UK, but the minute he landed in Belfast, he was driven down to Cork. And also excessive working days or hours and violence on victims. And as Gila said there, um, he claimed that he was hit by the skipper. And debt bondage, which means that fishers are kind of put in debt either due to money owed and um, perhaps being not paid and then their families, as Gila said, take out loans. So therefore they're kind of stuck where they are. Or in some cases we find that fishers actually um, were asked to pay agencies to get their jobs. So they're already in debt before they come here. So it puts them in a very precarious situation. So both the Gardaí and the PSNI, because um, they were involved because he travelled to Belfast, have not admitted him to the national referral mechanism in either jurisdiction. And unfortunately, he faces potential deportation in the coming months. 
Maria, is Lloyd's case unusual? How hard is it to get potential trafficking victims recognised as such and for it to go further than a simple presentation to the Gardaí and then potentially them running the risk of getting deported? Yeah, so the ITF um, told us that they found it's been harder in the past two years to to get this potential trafficking victims recognised as such. Between 2016 and 2020, 25 allegations relating to the fishing industry were made in terms of trafficking, with just one person not admitted to the National Referral Mechanism. However, to September 2021, eight allegations were made with just three victims admitted. So we asked the guards about this and, and they told us that um, they investigate all matters pertaining to any specific case and a file is forwarded to the DPP who will direct to prosecute or not. And as I said before, um, there has been no prosecutions to date in relation to labour exploitation in the fishing industry. Now, Lloyd did have UK documentation, but most of the other fishers you spoke to were on the atypical working scheme that was mentioned earlier. Why are they undocumented now since they had permission to work here? Yeah, so as Gila said, they left the where they were working due to the conditions that they were undergoing. And because their permissions are tied to their employer and people can change employers, but we, we've been told it's very difficult to do so. Um, then they became undocumented. In this scheme, um, as I said, it's, it's being criticised by reports before 4% actually of the workers in this scheme to date have been formally recognised as victims of trafficking. There's been many cases brought to the WRC for compensation or for just things like unpaid wages. And also sometimes people either get injured or sick and they can no longer work and can't fulfil the conditions of their working permission. So therefore, they often become undocumented. You also found that inspectors were finding that vessels had undocumented crew working on them. Is that correct? Yeah, so we obtained um, WRC and Marine Survey Office and Navy inspection reports through Freedom of Information requests. And our analysis of the WRC reports from 2021 and 2022 show that 40% of the cases involved undocumented workers. So that was vessel owners employing um, workers without permissions. And some of these had previously worked as part of the atypical scheme and four of the cases had trafficking mentions. So they were referred to the Gardaí. So of the 10 cases um, that were undocumented workers were on a boat, um, there were six prosecutions from three successful prosecutions, which resulted in convictions for vessel owners and fines ranging from €1,000 to €3,000. Um, and a large number of the, the inspection reports that we looked at from the WRC um, were around things like unpaid wages, unlawful deductions and issues with paperwork such as pay slips and payment of wage. So for what you're saying, Maria, there's been a large number of reports over the past few years on exploitation in the industry. So the government and relevant authorities obviously know about it, even if a lot of us listening today and reading the articles may not have been as aware. So I'm going to go to the question that we nearly always end up asking on these Noteworthy Explainer episodes. What are they doing to address it? So there's been a number of developments in recent months in relation to this, and they followed that minute report I mentioned that was published towards the end of last year. And also the US TIPS report kind of being on that tier two watch list obviously would have really spurred the government on. The most recent development is that the government set up a cross-departmental review to look at the atypical working scheme. 
The main recommendation coming out of that is that people move from the atypical working scheme to a general working permit. Now, that means, as I said, that they can apply for a stamp for a visa after five years and that once they have that, it doesn't tie you to an employer anymore and you can apply for families to join you here. The people who are already on the scheme, it's been recommended that that process be done a lot quicker. So they said two years, if not less, and that depends on what the ministers decide hasn't been finalised yet. Obviously, um, MMRCI, the ITF are calling for this to be done straight away for those who've been on the scheme. And this has been welcomed by both vessel owners and migrant advocates, but though they're not entirely in agreement on how it would be implemented. So the eighth typical scheme now is to be closed at the end of the year and be replaced by this new general working permit with the details still to be entirely ironed out. Now, groups aren't completely celebrating just yet because their main concern is that this does not address undocumented workers like Renee and Mark, who all came through this scheme, but then were left undocumented. And the ITF and MRCI say that these workers need to be included. But we put this question to the Department of Justice and they said that undocumented workers remain outside of the recommendations of this report. However, it is open to any person who is undocumented in the state to apply to the minister to regularise their residence. That's what's happening here. And Sheila, what about the Philippines? Are overseas fishers, we'll say migrant fishers, a priority for the government where you are? Uh, so we put on a number of queries to the Department of Migrant Workers in the Philippines. Uh, so the department is tasked to protect the rights and promote the welfare of overseas Filipino workers, but we did not receive a reply in time for publication. Uh, but currently, there is a proposed Magna Carta for seafarers in the Senate, which hopes to advance their rights on the basis of the International Labor Organization's Maritime Labor Convention of 2006. It hopes to include seafarers on boarding fishing vessels, but then it lacks clarity in distinguishing the differences between a Filipino seafarer and a Filipino migrant fisher. Uh, Father Paulo Prigol, who I mentioned earlier, actually called on the government to craft a law specifically for migrant fishers. Uh, because according to him, uh, when these fishers are repatriated, they just go home. But then when there's another opportunity that ar- arises, they go abroad once again. And he asks how best can they help or how best can organizations like theirs help if Fisher's only choice is to leave home. Thanks, Gila, and thanks, Maria. Now, Dr. Cleona Murphy, Associate Professor of Law in Maynooth University, told this investigation the following. Migrant workers are used and exploited within the fishing industry all over the world. This is a worldwide problem but the problems in Ireland can be traced to very specific policies and laws here. And as Maria and Gila have told us in this podcast, the key issue is that migrant fishers who have been left undocumented are essentially out in the cold from prospective legislative changes, and there appears to be no commitment so far to including them. You have been listening to this bonus episode of The Explainer, brought to you by Noteworthy.ie. It was produced by Laura Byrne. If you want to learn more about our work at Noteworthy and how we source our stories from you, our readers and listeners, head to our site at noteworthy.ie. You can sign up to our newsletter, which will give you an insider look at our latest investigations by visiting noteworthy.ie forward slash newsletter. Thanks for having us and see you next time.